0: Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people engage in the love of a fiercely relational God. Good morning. morning. Welcome. Uh, Take your Bible. Uh, We are in Acts um, 6. We're actually, uh, even though it is the Easter season, we're moving through um, the book of Acts. And... We're going to do something. um, Probably, maybe it's usual, but maybe it's unusual. Um, But we're going to look at Acts six through the lens of Luke ten. So I'm going to start by reading a couple verses out of Luke ten. If you're scrolling on your phone, scroll away. If you're going to open your Bible, you can put um, maybe a finger in both spots. So, but here's what I want to open up this morning is um, this idea of the kingdom of God. Okay, so. When John the Baptist entered the scene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he intros with um, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of God is near. And that was really the first time. There's a few passages in the Old Testament, and if you, if you sort of peer through the lens of the kingdom of God or God establishing the kingdom of Israel on the earth, you can see the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. But when John the Baptist breaks onto the scene, he is saying something that is kind of like, what? And then you have Christ Jesus who comes onto the scene, and he says again, repent for the the kingdom of heaven is near. What is... So the question that we're going to wrestle with today as we look at uh, Acts 6 is actually, what is the kingdom of God? How do I access the kingdom of God? How do I know if I'm in the kingdom of God or I'm outside of the kingdom of God? Um, can I determine if someone else is walking in the kingdom of God? So we're going to wrestle with the kingdom. What does that mean? What's it mean biblically? And then we're going to try to pivot and make some applications into our own lives. Sound good? Okay, Um, I think I would also sort of set the table this morning with the transformation of the human mind uh, and the transformation of the human heart or the human will is what is required to abide in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The transformation of the human mind, the transformation of the human heart is what is required to abide in the kingdom of god and the kingdom of god is largely uh, the same as the presence or the person of jesus that's right so the kingdom of god and the person of jesus or the presence of jesus are in many ways synonymous so the human will is really transformed by experience with king jesus and really not by information Yeah. Yeah. I'll say that again. Um, the, the, uh, in fact, I'm going to go right off of here. The human will is transformed by experience with King Jesus or by experience with the kingdom of God and not merely by information. Okay, so largely we live in a country and thank God for America. Thank God for the education system. I'm all about education. We believe in it, but what we know and what we've learned is that education alone is not enough to transform the human mind, the human heart and the human will. So the only way then that we are left to really experience deep and lasting transformation is connecting with and abiding in the kingdom of God and the presence of the Lord Jesus. And here's the wrinkle. You cannot access the kingdom of God or the person of Jesus without surrendering your own kingdom, will, and way. I know I'm just digging us right in this morning, aren't I? Thanks, Pastor Michael. If you're new here with us, welcome to church. We're jumping on in. We're gonna go for it. We're gonna get into the word. I'm gonna give it to you kind of like straight and direct. Okay, so um, let's, Let's start reading here um, in Luke 10 and let's talk about this and we're gonna try to work it through. So Luke 10 uh, verse eight is where I'm gonna pick up and then we're just gonna read a verse or two and then we're gonna go back to Acts six. All right, ready? Luke 10, I'm reading out of the NIV. Um, So this is Jesus talking and Jesus is sending out in this Luke 10 passage, he's sending out 72 men and women disciples, male and female disciples, okay? And he's sending them out to uh, go and share Jesus, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. He's sending them out to go like do all the stuff. So here's what he says um, in Luke 10 verse eight. When you enter a town and are welcomed. So, So now think with me, there's 72 people. They're being sent out all over the nation of Israel. So they're going from town to town, village to village. So they're entering into a town. And he says, when you enter into a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Okay, heal the sick. Uh, who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. There it is. Kingdom of God has come near to you. Verse 10. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, does that ever happen? Go into its streets and say, verse 11, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come Near. Okay, so here is the question. What is this kingdom of God? And how do we access it? How do we live in it? How do we make sure that we actually don't miss the kingdom of God? Okay, so jump with me to Acts 6. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrestle this thing out. You know how we do if you're, you're familiar with me. Um, but I'm going to actually start in verse 8 and then we're going to back up to chapter 6 verse 1. I know. Michael, you're going to confuse us today. Yep, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. Acts 6 verse 8. Now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Is Stephen, according to this text, in the kingdom of God? So I would say, what is the kingdom of God? Well, uh, the kingdom of God indicates a person who is living in the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's power. He is living in in a full connection, abiding in relationship with the Lord Jesus. And out of that relationship, there is this overflow of God's grace, overflow of God's power. He is performing great wonders and signs among the people. And then it says, opposition arose, which happens when you're walking with... Jesus, that's right. However, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Sicilia and Asia. Now, they're just telling you a bunch of Jewish people from different places got angry at Stephen. That's exactly right. Who began, and they all began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Is Stephen in the kingdom? How then do we get in and live in the kingdom? All right, so let me set the, set the table again with just some thoughts on the kingdom, and then we're going to go back and actually move through this whole of chapter um, 6. All right, so let's define um, kingdom as the range of your effective will, okay? I'm dragging you to the deep end this morning. So, so the, a kingdom, uh, and, and let's even differentiate little K kingdom. So in other words, Michael has a kingdom, Josh has a kingdom, Phil has a kingdom, and, and, and then there's capital K kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Okay, so kingdom then is the range of your effective will. So it's a little sphere where things happen just because you want them to happen. So who's in charge in your kingdom? Sometimes. Sometimes. Who's in charge in your kingdom? You, you are. You are the one in your kingdom and you have the choice as to whether or not you're going to surrender the reigns of that kingdom to God. Okay. so Your kingdom is this little sphere where things happen just because you want them to happen. It's the core of what it means to be created in the image of God. In other words, this is like dominion or rulership language. If you want to make a note, Genesis 1 Genesis 1.26 says, let us make humankind, men and women, in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion or let them have rule. So God creates us and he gives us an area in which we can rule or we have dominion. So now let's, we're going to, this is like theology for a two-year-old. Here we go. Are you ready? My two um, youngest ones, our two youngest ones, um, love to sit on the couch. And when they sit on the couch, they love to watch something on TV. And when they do that, they draw a line. There's a line. And, and guess what that line means? Okay, so let's flip this around another way. What two words come forth from the mouth of a two-year-old? Usually it's probably the second or third word after mom or dad. But what's the, what is the most common words that emanate from that little person? Mine and No, that's exactly right, what are they learning? Kingdom, does that two year old have a kingdom? Yes, so when my two little ones, when our two little ones, this is Abby, my wife, sit on uh, the couch and they draw this little line and sometimes they use a a, a crack um, uh, in the cushions. Now, once that line is drawn, what are the rules? Don't cross. And now what do they always do? throw a pillow, throw a toy. Okay. So what I want you to get is you as a person have a kingdom, lower K kingdom. It is a rulership around which you have dominion. Now, Abby and I are, let's say we're sitting, um, this is, it's a funny thing about our life. Maybe I'll tell you about more later, but Ezra um, has, uh, he's our youngest. He has some severe asthma and he takes this um, albuterol and um, inhalable steroid combination. And so, uh, it takes about 25 minutes for, for this thing to like go on his little face in the evening. So our kids watch something almost every evening. Cause guess what? You can't get a three-year-old to sit still unless you, so he plugs into this thing and they sit there and they watch. Now it never fails that somebody crosses the, and then what happens? It breaks out little fight breaks out. Now, it's really funny because I watch Abby and I, and we're sitting over at the table. We're often talking or cleaning up or whatever we're doing. Abby and I talk a lot. We share deeply with one another. And what's funny is occasionally we will get ruffled because we've got this funny idea that our house is our kingdom. This happens in the car. We just went on a traveling vacation down to Florida and we're traveling along, the kids have this little line in the back, somebody crosses it, there's a big fight, kingdom erupts and then Abby and I have the nerve to think that this car is our and so we have to stop and Referee or whatever it is now. I'm being funny, but I want you to get something that is so powerful because if you can get this It will transform the way you see yourself Your life the way you see church the way you see Jesus the way you see the kingdom of God And it will call you into this deep and significant Revelation about how you're to live the Christian life in and through the person of Jesus I'm telling you it's gonna be powerful You gotta hang with me though. All right, so um All right, let me, let me also make a, a statement here just on parenthood, because we're into, we're into kids in this whole thing. Our job as parents is not to control our kids. Our job is, as parents is to teach our kids to manage their freedom and their kingdom. That's our job. So a lot of times if a, if a kid or child lives under strict parental control and they get outside of that or at the end of that or they go away to college, what happens? Ah! Uh, truly, our job as parents is to help our kids learn to manage their freedom. What are you going to look at on your phone? What are you going to do at your friends' houses? What are you going to participate in? What do you do with your allowance? How do you manage your money? How do you manage your emotion? How do you manage your time? How do you do your homework? All the things, and we manage through helping our kids learn um, through trial and error, through difficulties, through loss, through rewards. But our job as parents is to help our kids learn to manage their kingdom. Okay. If that's transforming for you, then make a note. Um, but, But a lot of times, especially Christian parents, we think we're supposed to control our kids. And I'm going, huh. Teach them and allow life to be their schoolmaster, allow loss and difficulty, rewards and things that they miss to teach them to manage their little K kingdom and their freedom. Okay. Now, Every one of us has this um, understanding um, of kingdom and this um, sort of, even understanding this idea of little K kingdom is essential to understanding human nature and human dignity. It's what I love most about Yahweh God, Jesus, the God of the Bible, is he never violates human dignity. He will not violate your kingdom. He will not. Not ever. Now, leadership, let me just open up this can of worms because it needs to be open if we're going to talk through this, then we're going to get into chapter six. But leadership is very difficult because it's very hard to lead people without violating their kingdom. Now, the, uh, you can actually build a church um, somewhat rapidly by using coercion and manipulation and sort of incentivizing and doing different things. But the problem is you're producing an exterior result, um, but you're not helping people experience true internal transformation and you're actually violating their kingdom. You follow me? I'm not picking on anybody, I'm just saying that there is a, there is a risk um, in the church in this country and even around the world, but especially in America, that you can build church quickly on kingdom or personal sort of violation. So that's why like, we as people should be sensitive to being manipulated or flattered or intimidated or coerced. Does that make sense? Because that violates your kingdom. Who gave you your kingdom? Okay. You're rolling, we're getting it. Okay, so um, God has given you a will, um, and I think I would even say so clearly, I could take you through this Old Testament and even new, but God has given you a will, and the way God created um, people is that he gave them a will, and every person has full stewardship and control over your will. He will not violate it. In other words, if you refuse and reject Jesus, he will say, Okay, that's love, not coercion, not control, not flattery, not force, not manipulation, not wrangling you. No, 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 this is the God who has given you a will and the way God even created it, I would say now, in, now I'm, I'm talking about uh, human free will exists within the sovereignty of God, but I would say not even God can override the human will because he created us in his image. It's like okay so who has to open the door of your heart it's gotta be you can anyone else open the door of your heart all right when Jesus walked on earth when he said and when John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is near, or the kingdom of God is here, what he is beginning to say is heaven is here moving around. Who's heaven? Jesus so so heaven in this case is a relationship it's a person it's his presence the kingdom of God is here it is moving through the earth in the person of Jesus and it's coming near to you and you can repent connect get right with it come um, connect to him um, and and so then then he's even inviting people to walk with him this is Jesus of Nazareth Matthew Mark Luke John he's inviting people to walk on the earth with him and now you've got to like even flip your head a little bit more because the goal goal of Jesus is not simply to get us into heaven. We've got to work on this one. The goal of Jesus is not simply to get us into heaven. And, and a simplistic view of the American church and the Christian journey that we've, like, reduced this thing to is we just want everybody to raise their hand and pray a little. That's not the goal of Jesus. The goal of Jesus is part of it to get you into heaven, yes. But the larger goal is to get heaven into you. Because heaven, the kingdom of heaven is this person, this presence of Jesus. And if he can get that into you, all of a sudden your life starts transforming. The way you think starts changing. The way you treat other people starts changing. The way you treat a spouse, the way you relate to kids, the way you go to your job, the way you deal with your difficult neighbor, the way you talk to somebody in traffic when you're cut off. All of a sudden, the very essence and fabric of who you are begins to change. Does it change all at once? In fact, I would say to you that human transformation is terribly slow. If I was like ruthlessly and vulnerably honest, I'm 42 years old, I'll turn 43 in December, I thought for sure I came to Christ at four years old, and I thought for sure that I would have everything together and I would be a perfect, like, superstar stud of a queer Christian by age 42. And guess what? I It's like the closer I get to God, the more I recognize my absolute depravity and lack, and the more I need him and his kingdom. And I've just, uh, it's taken me a long time to get to this spot, but finally I've settled. I am not going to arrive until I cross the finish line into heaven. And I can't wait for that day. Come on. Okay. So the goal of Jesus is not simply to get us into heaven. Don't take that simplistic or even really silly view of God. Rather, the goal of Jesus is to get heaven into me, that's right, or you, us. And then we as Christians become formed in his likeness, in his image, and all of a sudden, no matter what your circumstances are like, you can have a health crisis, you can have a family crisis, you can have a financial crisis, you can be hurt, you could be abused, you could have your will or your kingdom violated, and all of a sudden, because you know that he is living in you and through you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's gonna use all of this that is happening not only for your good but for his ultimate glory to establish the kingdom of heaven the person of Jesus on the earth through you it's like oh so Christians should be the least anxious least defensive least whatever people because we should be so rock-solid believing that whatever happens good bad ugly or indifferent is going to further both our good and his glory and the kingdom of heaven on the earth That's like really good news. I mean, that kind of means that we don't have to wake up in the morning just like wringing our hands, like waiting for the next shoe to drop all the time. And a lot of us live that way, a lot of us. And if you're sitting there today going, I live that way, Michael, first of all, take a deep breath, (sighs) take a deep breath because you're in a journey, all right? Okay, so let's look at this guy, Stephen. Um, And let's look at what's happened in Acts chapter 6, and let's look at it through the lens of the kingdom of God, and let's see if we can sort of grasp and then even understand how we as people can more fully embrace um, the kingdom of God in our own life. Okay. Um, this is probably two years-ish, is what I would say. I, no one is fully can't know this fully, but chapter six of Acts is probably two years-ish from the resurrection of Christ, okay? So Christianity is new, it is young, it is blossoming, wild things are happening. And let's see what it says here at the beginning of chapter six. In those days where the number of disciples was increasing, so what's the church doing? Growing the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. What, did, what uh, language did the Hellenistic Jews speak? Oh, I heard it. Greek. Okay. So what happened is in this day and age, you have um, Greek speaking synagogues, which is where the, some Jews would worship. And then you would have Hebraic Jews. What do they speak? Hebrew. So then you have Hebrew synagogues. And all of a sudden, what's happening is you have this um, movement of God in and through the New Testament church. And and people are, in fact, if you skip ahead, look at verse 7. So the word of God continued to spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so you have, um, Greek speaking Jews, you got Hebrew speaking Jews, they're meeting in different places, then they've come to Christ, so they're all now gathering at the temple. Well, at the temple, um, you have animal sacrifices, you have all of the old covenant underway, and then all of a sudden you got all these priests who have come to Faith in Jesus, they've come to Christ, they've given their lives, and I just want to remind us, so let's just think back, when Christ was resurrected from the dead, or actually when he was crucified on the cross, before he was resurrected, there was a big um, veil or curtain that was super thick and wide and really tall, probably like twice this tall, Um, and it it separated the outer temple from the inner temple, the Holy of Holies, and it was rent or ripped from the top to the bottom. Just signifying that no human could rip it because it was so tall, okay? First of all. Then, secondly, what it signified is God would no longer dwell in buildings made by human hands, but rather he would dwell in. So, who's now the building of God? Say me. Okay, so you become the sanctuary. If Jesus is in you and you're in Jesus, you're now the sanctuary. So you've got all these priests who have now come to faith in Christ and everyone is sort of scratching their head like, do we keep practicing Judaism? Do we keep following the old way? Do I like, okay, I'm a priest and I've come to Christ. Do I keep going to the temple and killing animals and, and making blood atoning sacrifices? Like, There's this huge question of how then are we gonna live? And we're not going to fully open this this week. We'll open it next week as we get into chapter seven. But Stephen is amazing to me because Stephen takes a, um, almost like a splitting mall. Have you ever split wood? I, I'm a landscaper, so I'm like, you know. Um, chainsaws and wood and trees and all that stuff I'm kind of familiar with So, um, but a splitting uh, maul you'd, you'd put a, a slice of wood in front of you and um, you would take a um, like a, this wedge thing and you'd tap it in and then you're going to take this big 8 or 10 pound uh, maul kind of sledgehammer and you're going to pound this wedge into the log and the log's going to Okay, so what Stephen is actually being used by God to do here in chapter uh, 6 and then in chapter 7 is he is separating. He's going, bang, and he is separating and splitting modern new birth, new wine Christianity from the old ways of Judaism. Okay, but everybody's like, what do we do? There's, There's tension, there's uncertainty. Okay, so... All of a sudden, you got these Greek-speaking Jews, you got Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they're complaining against the other because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Can you imagine people complaining in the early days of a church plant? Somebody's going to get angry, and somebody's going to go, well, fine, I'm going to go plant my own church. And what are they going to do? Okay, well, let's see how they handle it. Don't think the New Testament church was perfect. It's a mess, just like you and I, just like the here and now, and God is actively working to, um, to uh, transform us as the bride of Christ for his ultimate return. We're still being transformed. Okay, let's keep going. Um, <clears throat> verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Who are the twelve? The original apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus, minus one, because they put a guy named Matthias in the place of Judas. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. What does that mean? It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. I'm giving you this morning the ministry of the Word of God. We're just opening the word, we're teaching the word, we're teaching the person of Jesus in order to wait on tables. This is not a superior thing. This is a beautiful acknowledgement that there's different functions and calls in the body of Christ. Does that mean they're better? Absolutely not. It's just different. Okay. Verse three, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you Who are known, and by the way, they chose seven men here, but these would be called like deacons by the Apostle Paul. And there are female deacons. So this is not just a male thing in the Bible. Um, But right here, they said, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Who are known to dwell in the kingdom of God. Who are known that Jesus dwells in them. Okay. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. According to that, would he be a kingdom man? Yes. Okay. Also, Philip um, Prochorus. Nicanor, Timon, um, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, just real quickly, what that tells me is the Hellenistic or the Greek speaking widows are not being ministered to. So they chose a bunch of Greek people. It's really interesting. They chose Greek people. This is like the beginning of this idea that missionaries go to empower indigenous peoples, not to go and, you know, train uh, others to be like us. Make sense take it or not all right then they presented this seven to the apostles they laid their hands on them um, and they prayed for them so they commissioned them verse seven so the word of god spread how's the word of god spreading people are sharing jesus people are inviting their friends to come hang out at solomon's Colonnade. people are praying with people people are laying hands on people i mean it's like man it's just happening the number of disciples in jerusalem increased rapidly Does that word disciples there, does it include male, female, young, old? You better believe it. Okay, so the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. We don't know how many, but at this point, there's multiple, multiple thousands of people. And then a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Can you imagine different church people arguing? But they could not stand up against his wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, the exact same thing happened two years earlier with a guy named Jesus. That's exactly right. So this is a full repeat of the trial of Jesus. And I would love if you flip ahead to verse, um, to the end of chapter seven, right before you get to chapter eight, you're actually going to see that they're going to kill Stephen. He becomes the first martyr. And I would love to know uh, one of these questions I have for Jesus when I walk into his glorious presence at the end of my earthly journey is when did Stephen know? Like when did this guy know that this was the end, that he was going to be escorted into the ultimate kingdom of God, into eternity? He was going to die and his physical body um, would would die. So verse 11, uh, well, verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and then they seized Stephen and they brought him before the great Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. Who else did they do this to? Jesus, absolutely right. <clears throat> they they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Now, is there an element of truth to that? There is because he's beginning to say that Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament law and they're beginning to experience freedom from all these Old Testament rules. And they're beginning to say what God's really concerned about is not that you clean up the outside, but that you actually allow him to transform your heart and the person of Jesus is formed within you. So they have taken something um, that has some truth to it and they're sort of exploiting it at this moment. Okay. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, Uh, verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Is there truth in that? There is. Jesus actually said, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. What was he talking about? His physical body. So is there some truth in what, this, what is happening? Is he going to change the customs Moses handed down? Yes, it's happening. Verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, let's just open this here a, a minute. Um, Acts 6, verse 8 says, Stephen is full of God's grace, full of God's power. Um, He's a man empty, if you will, of his own kingdom. Um, He's a man who is full of the kingdom of God. He's he's actively erasing the lines, if you will. Go back to our kids on the couch with those little lines. Stephen is a man who is actively erasing the lines that, that define his kingdom, and he is welcoming the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God to live in him and... Through him. Okay. So <clears throat> um, most of us uh, live out of this place or out of this reality where we give God permission to come into our life. But we most of us have these little areas that we have sort of sequestered off or we've drawn lines on our sort of hypothetical couches. And we say, no, mine. Remember, theology of a... Okay, so there are areas, if we dig into most of our hearts, if we took the time to go all the way around this room, there's areas where you might be willing to stand up and go, I am still hanging on to my right to be bitter against someone that abused me 20 years ago. Is God compassionate on the hurt that is in you from that abuse? Yes. But if you don't let him come into that and you choose to hang on to your kingdom, will he honor your will and will he let you sit in your bitterness? like this is this is like it's it's painful in some ways but it's also so good because the moment you begin to go God I can't change that I have these feelings about what happened to me 20 years ago I can't stand this person that hurt me and I pray Lord Jesus that you would help me to forgive them I don't even have the power in and of myself would you empower me to forgive them would you forget even work in me to forgive them and I choose to let them go in the name of Jesus what begins to happen You're erasing those kingdom lines. And all of a sudden the person of Jesus, the kingdom and will and way of God is now welcome. Where? In that area. Now, we could probably go through. Some of us have stuff with money. Some of us have stuff with what we like to think about or what we like to watch or the car we like to drive or the house we like to live. We're like, God, you can have everything but mine. No. Come on, theology of a okay. The moment I become absorbed in my own affairs impressed with my own faith, impressed with my own religion, too focused on my truth as I understand it. I stopped seeking him. I've defined my boundaries, and what does the kingdom of God do? You gotta see this. So it it becomes this, how do we then live, Michael? How do we live in the kingdom of God? It is a daily, moment-by-moment choice to surrender. In fact, I I love some parts of the Old Testament. If you're reading the one-year Bible with us, you see Moses, whenever anything happens in the Old Testament with the people, or a frustrating thing, or they come and complain against him, you know what he does first time every time? He actually lays down on his face. So what he's doing is he is uh indicating he is laying down his rights he's laying down his will he is laying down his way and when you do that what happens with the kingdom of god come on where does it go it begins to work in you and through you. So there is, this, there is this anomaly. There's this thing where in order to experience this full, intimate communion with God, abiding in the person of Jesus, practicing the presence of Jesus, learning to hear the voice of Jesus in your daily life, uh, in order to do that, you have to be actively laying down or surrendering your lowercase k kingdom. You have to be erasing those lines and inviting the person of God to come in and fill that area. Let me like, make it personal for just a second. You'll have to make it personal in your life. The moment I become impressed or focused with my leadership or my next sermon or some soundbite version of Christianity and I stop seeking after God, I'm defining my little kingdom and what does the person and presence of God do? The kingdom withdraws. Like, it's it's actually like, oh my gosh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Because if we as a people don't get to the place where we choose to erase and continue to erase these lines, and did God give you a kingdom? Yes. Whose job is it to open the doors of your heart so that he can come in? Mine. Yours. Is he going to force his way into your life? God always invites, he always welcomes, he always loves, he always gives, but he will never force his way in to your heart or your life. I mentioned just a few minutes ago about Ezra's, uh, our little guy's breathing machine. He turns three today, That's his birthday. (laughs) But, but he's got this um, breathing machine, this albuterol, an inheritable steroid that we, we put on. And I, it, it, I'm just illustrating a, a point in my own heart, in my own life, and you're going to have to make application in your heart and your life. But there are things in my heart and in our life and in our marriage that Abby and I look at and we go, I hate this. God, I don't like this. God, I don't want this. Is that a normal human response? Yes. yes. Does God have compassion on it? Yes, and if I go to him in all authenticity, and I like a bowed knee because it just, it's just—it's an external symbol of an internal heart posture and attitude—and I go, Lord Jesus, I don't like what you've allowed in Ezra's life, but I choose to bow my knee. What he's all of a sudden—and I don't think this means we don't pray for healing. I think we do pray for healing, but rarely in Scripture does God heal everybody. Could He heal Ezra? Possibly. Am I going to pray for that? Yes. But in the meantime, I'm sitting in this deal. We have to put this little breathing machine on him, and I have to go, Lord Jesus, I don't like this. Would you? forgive me and would you allow me to see your kingdom in this little thing that I don't like? Now, here's what he's already begun to show me. Ezra literally can't breathe without Yahweh means the breath of God. He's like, Michael, would you get out of my way and let me form Ezra and teach him that he cannot live without the breath of God? This is what I believe and I'm convinced so rock-solidly about the goodness of God. If you will lay down the right to your kingdom, your little line on the couch, And if you will begin to actively bring him those places that are hurt or frustrated or you're afraid or you're anxious or you're defensive or you're angry at somebody or somebody's hurt you from the past, if you will begin to lay those things down and invite the kingdom of Jesus, the person of Jesus into them, you will begin to experience the joy and the hope and the peace and the life of the Lord Jesus being lived in you and through you that has nothing to do with your circumstances. It's so good. It is so good because all of a sudden you are outside of it. This is the kingdom of God. This is how Stephen can be a man full of God's grace and power. He can be standing there, and he's about to preach a sermon, and everyone's about to pick up these huge stones and drag this guy Stephen outside. And they're going to take stones, and they're going to crush them down on his skull, and they're going to kill him. And he doesn't back down. And most of us, Michael, is oftentimes nervous and scared to share Jesus with somebody at Kmart or Walmart or wherever I am. I don't think Kmart exists anymore. (laughs) There is something so powerful when we can get a hold of this reality that you have a kingdom and it's good that you have a kingdom and you're not meant to override anybody else's will. Can you control your spouse? No, can you control your kids? No, you can't even control the circumstances of your own life. But one thing you can control is your own will. That's all you can control, your own will. Lord Jesus, I choose to open my heart and will to you. Would you allow me to know the person of Jesus? Would you allow me to experience the infilling power of the kingdom of God? I'm telling you, church, if we could get our hands on this and around it, it will begin to change the way you interact with people at work, family, spouse, kids, Everybody, everywhere, it begins to change because all of a sudden you're now a companion and participant with Jesus in leading people to life in Christ. And our job is now to let God be formed within us. Go back to my opening statement, or one of my opening statements. The human will is transformed by experience with King Jesus and not by information. The human will is often transformed by difficulty and suffering. You cannot get into the kingdom of God. You cannot access the kingdom of God without surrendering your own will and way. What must it have been like for Stephen in this moment? In verse 15, here's what it says. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like what? Now, there's something really powerful here that I, that I want to open up. I'm going to flip back to Exodus 34. You don't have to read. You don't have to go back there if you don't want. I'm just going to reference it. But Exodus 34, this is what it says. Uh, Starting in verse 29, Exodus 34 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone uh, tablets of the covenant law in his hands, those were the Ten Commandments, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. I don't even know how to explain this or think of this except like the moon at night reflects the what? The sun. Does the moon have any light in and of itself? No. What does it do? It is a reflector. That's that's who we become as believers. So Moses comes down carrying these two stone tablets and his face is radiant. And if you read on it actually in verse 33 it says, when Moses finished speaking to them he put a veil over his face. Like he covered his face with his veil because the glory of God was shining so powerfully in and through Moses. Now, go back to uh, Acts chapter 6. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against uh, the law. Who gave the law? Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs of the Moses handed down to us. So the the sermon that God Almighty, Yahweh, King of Heaven and Earth, God of the Angel Armies, the Creator, is preaching now to the great Sanhedrin and to all the religious people is, not only is Stephen not going to destroy what Moses did, this is me and I am putting in front of you because every one of those religious people would have had this passage in Deuteronomy 34 fully memorized. So they would have seen Stephen and all of a sudden they see his face like the face of and angel, and they're all reminded that Moses came down from Mount Sinai having interacted face-to-face with God, carrying two stone tablets, and his face was radiant, reflecting the glory of God. So God is preaching this message, desiring that even this group of people would repent and would not kill uh, Stephen on this particular day, um, offering to them this idea that that he can and he will, if you would um, hear this guy, he is changing old wine into new wine. Those are the words of Jesus. But what is happening then on on probably a bigger level, um, I'm gonna reference two other scripture verses. Deuteronomy 4, verse 29, you don't have to go there, I'm just gonna read it if you wanna write it down. It says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. How do you find God? Seek him with all your heart and all your soul, okay. Jeremiah 29, 13, this is all Old Testament. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart no one can unlock your will no one can invite the kingdom of God or the person of Jesus into your lower K kingdom except you and all you can do is begin to surrender your heart and your will to him and invite Jesus into every one of those areas in your life and I just be frank and honest there's areas where I go father I don't like this but I choose to surrender my will erase my little kingdom line and invite you into it and let him do the rest he's creator God let him transform you. Don't work it up and change it and try to figure it out. Let him deal with it. So Stephen's face likens to the face of Moses, indicates a heart that's pursuing God. Now I want to see if I can tie this together. And Dwayne and Nicole, maybe y'all will come back out. And I'm going to use a non—I'm um, going to use a quote from a non-Christian because I think this Christian, this non-Christian, is actually on to the kingdom of God in some strange way. There's a guy named uh, Benjamin Zander of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, and he wrote a book. And one of the things he says in this book is, here goes, you can't impose your will on people's hearts. You can impose your will on their hands and on their feet, but you cannot win their hearts with force. You can subject them to your will and you can get results, but their eyes don't shine. My power is enormous, but it exists entirely in my ability to make other people more powerful. I don't understand how this guy who doesn't have a lot of Christian history or Judeo-Christian viewpoint, gets the kingdom of God. But he gets the fact that there is a loving creator God who has created each of us and given us dominion over our little kingdoms and our little areas. And then he's invited us to surrender our kingdom to his will and way. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven heaven, we become these people that are uh, called to companionship and participation with him to erase the lines of our own little kingdom and invite the person of Jesus to come in and work in us and through us. Now, here's what I want you to grab at the end. The kingdom of heaven is near. Right now. The kingdom of heaven is near you right now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is near you. And the kingdom of heaven is always near you. And the question is how much are you willing to open the lines or erase the lines of your own little K kingdom and allow the larger kingdom of God through the person of Jesus to come in and work in your heart? There is never a time, no matter how bad it gets, you could be in prison, you could be being abused, you could be being hated, you could be like Stephen about to die. There is never a moment where the kingdom of God is not near you and all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, come and fill me in this moment. I don't understand, I don't like it, I'm hurting. Would you help me? And you begin to invite the kingdom of God into your place, into your space, into your sphere. And you let him form Jesus inside of you and transform you. So good. Can we close with a song? Let's stand up. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come up if you want some special prayer. If you've never given your life to this Jesus, if you're online or you're in person, I'd love to pray with you. I'm gonna close this after this song. Let's hang, let's worship together, and let's just invite the presence of the Lord Jesus to come. The kingdom is near. Can you say that with me? The kingdom of God is near. Ready? One, two, three. Come on, let's do that again. We can do better than that. Ready? One, two, three. Father, we praise you that your kingdom is near. Father, we praise you that no matter where each of us is in our particular Jesus journey, that your kingdom, the kingdom of God, the person of Jesus is near and is here. And Father, I pray for us as a church that as we exit this building, that we would recognize that church isn't about building. It's not about a set of norms or what we do or don't do. It's actually about abiding in a person. Father, I pray that you would bring us as a church revelation of what it means to live in the kingdom of God reality moment by moment, day by day. And Father, I pray just like our two-year-old theology that you would allow us as a church, as a group of people to tear down our own little K kingdoms in order to allow you to rule and reign in our lives. Father, as we go today, would you cause this group to be blessed and full of your spirit? Would you shine your face on us? Would you allow us to taste and know of your goodness, your gentleness, and your kindness? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus
1: journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.